we were about a month behind in our regular budget, and we were just starting off this giving, uh, this operation renovation on our lower level. And it, it, we were starting off in a summer, which is not when you want to start any type of financial campaign. That's number one. That's a difficulty. Number two, it was not just one financial campaign, but two, which is what you, you, you just don't do. But God was completely amazing and gracious, and we gave to you a challenge, first of all, to raise $20,000 for our lower level, which you did in two months. You sacrificed a ton, and it was great to see and be a part of it. And then we had a, an individual, an anonymous donor, come to us and said, gave us a giving challenge of, uh, they said, I would match every 50 cents on the dollar up to $8,100 for the months of July and August. Well, July, you guys met that. Uh, you, you stepped into that. We raised uh, $4,500 above our budget, and you responded. And then in August, it, it, we had a little, little bit of a dip. And then the donor came back and said, you know what, I'm going to extend this into September. And instead of doing it 50 cents on the dollar, I want to do it a dollar for dollar. And so we went through the month of September, and we came into our very last Sunday. And we, were, we had sent out an email to you that said we were $6,300 short just by meet, meet, for meeting budget for, for the month of September. But in our hearts, we're, we're sitting there going, we have this giving challenge. We need to get another $4,000, which is a $10,000 offering. And we've never seen that before at our church. And so the offering came in, and we were very pleased to see that we'd raised $6,600. So we'd met the, for the month, which was a huge praise. And we even got $300 on top of it, but we still didn't get the full amount of the giving challenge. Then I spoke with David, and I said, David, we need to be in prayer. We have one day left. Even though it's not a Sunday, we have one day left in this giving challenge for the month. So we prayed, and then on Tuesday, I texted our financial secretary, and I said, did any offerings come in online on Monday? And she said, yes, several. I said, really? I said, how much? She goes, $39.50. And I sat, and I took the number from that, and I took the number from July, and remember, the giving challenge was for $8,100. And I added it up, it was 8101 That's huge. Give, yourself, give God a hand, give yourselves a hand. Thank you for being obedient to what God has called. That is, that is, if you can't say that's not definitely of God, to have that just equal that amount. If one dollar over, it's like God was laughing, going, told you. <laughs> Got this. And the donor already responded, and now, by God's grace, we are, we are completely erased all of our, our deficit for we had, I mean, um, for our budget deficit. And now we are right on budget. Matter of fact, out of all the campuses, uh, and there are four campuses, we are the most financially stable right now, and it's just a praise to God to see God working in and through you with just diverse things that have been coming at us and, and um, entering into these fall months. We want to continue, though. Don't, don't just say, hey, it's there, and we quit. We need to keep moving on. We still have this lower level, and we've raised funds for it, and uh, we're getting near the end of it, but we still have more to go um, in it. And you, if you've walked down there, things are coming into shape. And, and I know I've been pressing off each weekend, hoping that we would get all this work done. And then finally, I looked at John Rosas, and John looked at me, and he goes, Travis, it's going to get done when it's going to get done. So I said, okay, I want to give all these workers rest. They've been working very hard, very late nights. John and his team have been doing great things. And I'm going to, yeah, give him a hand. <laughs> you can, you know, you can keep applauding when you realize that he's been working with me the whole time. So, you know, John's laughing because that's true. That's very true. John's prayer life has taken on new meaning. Please, Lord, take this thorn away from me. 
So, um, no, but we are excited. We are so grateful for those, all of those who have sacrificed your time, who have come in. It's a huge praise. And, and though we push back generations, we know that it's going to happen by God's grace and God's timing. And so we're just going to say right now, we're not going to meet with our generations ministry, which is our kind of discipleship ministry, educational ministry, for the month of October. We're just going to push that back to November in the hope that it, it will all be done. And we're still, again, waiting on more funding to come in for the flooring. And if you've made a faith promise for that, we want to encourage you to fulfill that and just look to God and see what He's doing and partner with Him at this opportunity we have before us. And I'm already in awe of what God has done, and I, I can't see it getting any better, but I just know that God can do more than we could ever ask or imagine. So let's continue to be faithful, giving back to Him what is already His, and let's pause for a moment as we prepare our hearts to give, uh, give back to the, again to the Lord what is already His. And if you're here today and you're a guest, please don't feel obligated to give. Uh, we just recognize this as simple stewardship, uh, being a faithful steward of what God has given to us, and we want to give Him what is already His for His glory and our joy. So let's pause for a moment and ask for His blessing on our offering. Our Father and our God, we are amazed at you and what you have done. Lord, something that seems so insurmountable by our perspective, you have shown yourself to be faithful to do more than we could ask or imagine. And Lord, we know that you're desiring us to take greater steps of faith, to trust you with all of our resources, to trust you for those risks in our life when we are wondering, do we, do we talk to someone about who you are or do we not? Do we... Do we share at our workplace or at our school? Do we not? Do we participate in this? Do we not? Lord, we want to be faithful stewards of everything you've given unto us, and we want to take greater steps of faith that your name might receive glory, whether that be in our time, our talents, or our treasures. May your name receive glory and praise. Lord, I know that there are some of those who are in our fellowship that are struggling. Several have lost their jobs or just heard news that they would be laid off. Lord, I would pray that, pray that you show your presence and your peace in each family. Calm their nerves. Show that you are the faithful provider, that you will direct them. And Lord, help us as a body to come around one another and truly be the body you desire us to be, supporting one another, reaching out to one another, doing life together, sacrificially giving of our resources and our time for your, the glory of your name. And Lord, we want to see your name receive glory, not just here in Aurora, but throughout the world. Lord, please, we want your spirit to be preeminent in this place. We want you to be working in our hearts and our minds so you might touch individuals and they might reflect back to you who you are. So, Lord, as we give you our, our tithes and our offerings today, Lord, please take a little that we give and make it much that your name might resound in this place and that when all who come through might praise and honor you and say, surely God is in this place. So, Lord, we give it to you. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we are in the book of Matthew chapter 5, so I would encourage you to turn with me as we, we kicked off our series last week entitled Upside Down Kingdom. And as you saw in this video, it's, it's God taking and turning what this world values upside down. And it, it almost seems like an oxymoron. I mean, you guys know what an oxymoron is, right? Words that, that seemingly don't go together, but we use them all the time and we don't even think about it. Here's some for you. How about this? Jumbo shrimp. Okay? This is, this is one that my military guys love. Military intelligence. All right? How about that? Or act naturally. That's my favorite one. Act naturally. Okay. How do you act naturally? 
doesn't really work very well. Or here's some other ones, and we don't think about it because they've become such so common in our vernacular. Civil war. How is a war civil? <laughs> you know, there's all these things that just don't seem to go together. These words, these expressions, these phrases, and we need to just we stop and we they become such a part of us that we we don't really even think about it anymore. Here's a few more for you. Original copy. Think about that one. Original copy. Small crowd. Small crowd. Weirdly normal. Man, you guys are a tough crowd. Short wait. There's just bad pastoral jokes is what it is. Short wait. There's a bunch of them. And today we're going to be talking about one of those things that just doesn't seem to go together. Happy sadness. Happy sadness. Now, we, we talk about this because what Jesus does is he takes things and he, he turns them on their head. He has this way of, of taking things that this world values and this world esteems, and he just totally flips it this way. See, this world says get. Jesus says give. This world says be served. Jesus says serve. This world says do whatever you can to save your life. Jesus says lose your life for me and then you'll save it. He totally turns everything upside down with this world values. We want power and prestige. Jesus says, become a servant. He totally turns it upside down. And today, that's what he's doing. He is showing us, and he starts off with this beatitude, which we already heard read, and it's a very short one, and it's saying, blessed are those who do what? Mourn. Now, that doesn't, if we, that doesn't really make sense, but if we put it together, it's almost saying, happy are the sad. I don't know what that means. What does it mean, happy are the sad? I mean, I remember as a kid hearing the Beatitudes, and, it, and I'd, I'd sit there and I'd go, what does that mean? Happy are the sad people. Why are the sad people happy? Because I, I see a lot of sad people. I don't see them really happy. And Jesus shows us that there is something there, but it's something different than what we seek and understand. When he even uses the word blessed, it's the word pentheo in Greek. And, and, and it, what it means there, it's this understanding of, of an individual who is grieving over a death or to grieve over a personal hope that dies. It can also mean manifested grief, with the grief being so severe it takes possession of a person and cannot be hid. So Jesus is saying blessed. Now it's understanding here of a state of being of someone who is in grief. So this person is blessed because they're in the state of grief. Now that doesn't make any sense to me. On the surface, it just doesn't seem to go together. But what Jesus does is he's saying, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Now it has to be understood in how it's rooted in the, the beatitude right before that. And this blessed are those who are poor in what? Spirit, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what that means is, as we learned last week, it's blessed are those who are bankrupt spiritually and know it, because that's the first step of entering into the kingdom of God. You have to know how bad you are before you can have a Savior. You can't have a Savior until you know that you're a sinner. You can't get into heaven without knowing how bad you are, that you can't save yourself. You can't, no matter how hard you try. And we all think that we're a little bit better than the others around us. We have a tendency to pick out the faults of others and compare ourselves with the worst of the worst or someone that we know is worse than us. And when someone is better than us, then we, have a, we think they're better, then we have a tendency to just write them off or put them in this category of other that they don't even apply in our situations. 
And Jesus is saying, no, 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 we need to come back and look at God's standard, and you need to understand how we are in relation to Almighty God. And he's saying here, then, that blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who understand who they are at their core. Now, what I want us to understand is this. Maybe a personal illustration is in order. There is a way of mourning that is blessed by God, a way of sorrow. And what he's talking about in this context is sorrow over sin. Sorrow over sin. Now, uh, I want to tell you a little bit of a, a little story. When I was in college, I had a professor named Harry Shields. Harry Shields. He was a pastoral professor. I was uh, wanting to be in ministry, and I went to school for that. And I remember sitting in this class with him. He was a great prof. I don't remember what the class was, quite honestly. And I was sitting there, and uh, I had a lot of classes with him. And several guys in this course, we were the same major. So we took a lot of classes together, and we built a camaraderie among us. So it wasn't uncommon to joke around in class. It wasn't uncommon at all. And I remember one day just walking to class. We literally sat down, getting adjusted, and I knew his schedule was busy. Another prof had gone on to a different ministry and left him with a very full schedule. So he was teaching from literally morning to evening without much of a break. So he was being really stressed to uh, to the, I mean, had a lot of tension on him. And I remember he said something in class that made me think of something my buddy was dealing with. So I leaned back in my chair, smiled at him like this, and my friend winked back. And the next thing I know, the prof stops the class. And of course, I'm like, what happened? And he's looking at me. (laughs) And he's like, I am so sick of you guys. And I'm like, who's he talking to? And he goes, it's you. And I'm like, me? What did I do? And he goes, and you guys keep doing all this stuff in class. And I said, all I did was lean back and smile at the guy. And he goes, that's it. Class is over. And I'm sitting there going, what just happened? And the whole class stands up, and my buddy is sitting over there. We're both the only guys left in class now. Everybody else has got up and walked out of the class. And I look at my friend. I'm stunned, kind of shaking, like, what just happened? And the prof's just standing at the door, and he's fuming. And uh, my buddy gets up, he walks up to the professor, and he goes, I'm so sorry. I have no idea what I did. (laughs) But whatever it is, I'm so sorry forgive me. <laughs> and he walked out the door. I just walked out and went, see ya. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. Well, the next day, I didn't have that class, and I, I, went, um, I went to classes, and I came back to my room, and there was a voicemail for me. And uh, it was my, my professor. He wanted to meet with me. And I'm like, what else did I do wrong? And, you know, it's like feeling you get called right before you get called in the principal's office. Um, and uh, I, I, I tried to ig- just ignore it, and and then I came back later this afternoon. There was another voice message from him. He really wanted to meet with me. And I, and, but by that time I got home, I got back to my room. The day was done, and he was gone. So the next morning, I go to classes again. I come back. There's another voice message from me. He is determined to get a hold of me. And finally, I am walking in the middle of the, quad air, the, the open area, and then he, he, I see him. And I'm like, oh, no. And he comes, run, he comes over to me, almost running. And he goes, I need to talk to you. And I'm like, and he goes, I have to ask for your forgiveness. And I was like, say what? And he said, I'm sorry, I was wrong for what I did in class. You did nothing wrong. And I need you to forgive me right now, please. He couldn't rest until he made it right. Now see, that's what he, Jesus is talking about in this passage. He's saying, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are so broken over their sin that they won't rest until they make it right. 
See, many of us have become complacent and comfortable with our sin. And Jesus is saying, no. You need to, blessed are those who mourn and are broken over their sin and will do anything to make it right. See, I think many of us aren't like that. I think, I think uh, many of us are like the guy uh, who had stolen a large sum of money from uh, a store. And years later, he writes a letter to the store, and in it is a $50 bill. And he says, I stole this from you years ago, and if I can't sleep anymore, I'll send the rest. <laughs> See? I think many of us are like that, are we not? We don't want to do everything that we need to do, just enough to pacify our conscience. God is saying, no, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What I want us to do now is we're going to break this down into our our message. But before we go any further, I want us to pause and get God's blessing on our time together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these beatitudes. We thank you that your spirit is working among us and your word speaking to us. Lord, I do pray that you use the words that are spoken today. May they be your words, not mine. And may, Lord, you etch your truth on us. Uh, May you tattoo us with the reality of who you are. And may we go forth making the changes necessary to experience your very blessing and the joy of being forgiven and being loved and, and a part of your kingdom. For your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. So let's jump right in here. For us to understand this, this beatitude, and it's a very small beatitude, we have to understand that this, this beatitude requires us grieving over sin. Grieving over sin. Let me ask you a question. Have you felt grief over your sin? Or are you content with it? Now what does it mean to also be grieved over it? It means be bothered by it to the point that you were sorry for it and it leads you to right action. Now, if we're going to understand this, there's, a, there's three ways that we have a tendency to grieve over sin. Not just our personal sin, that, but that is the first step. Is we need to grieve over our personal sin. Write that down. That's letter A in your notes. Grieving over our sin involves grieving over our personal sin. Have you grieved over your personal sin? And what I mean by that is not comparing yourself with others. I want you to do a spiritual inventory of your life and do business with God right now. I mean, we're going to be going to the Lord's table in just a little bit. And part of going to the Lord's table, it means doing a spiritual inventory, asking God to put, bring to the surface any sins that we haven't repented of. Or as my mentor said to me, wait till the Holy Spirit puts his finger on it. It makes you feel uncomfortable. So you have a tendency to rationalize, excuse, and do all of those things. And says the Bible, and Jesus is saying, no, don't rationalize it. You need to grieve over it. And you need to grieve over your personal sin. See, that's what David did in Psalm 51, 44 through 5. See, remember, David had been guilty of sinning against God by committing adultery with Bathsheba. With, by the way, I mean, he, I mean with her, but it's even worse when we consider Uriah, who was her husband. He was part of his, um, almost like his secret service. Um, and he was a true follower of God. He was a great soldier. He was faithful. And that just made the adultery even more magnified in how how bad it was. But he understood that when he was confronted in his sin, that he had sinned against God, first and foremost. And that's why he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He didn't try to rationalize it. He said it for what it was, and he was grieving over it. We need to have that same type of grief, grieving over our personal sin. And then we should be grieving over the spirit of the age. The spirit of the age. Now, what what does that mean? 
sometimes in a previous generation we've called it more the spirit of the age today we call it worldliness and and if we were to define worldliness according to david wells it's this anything that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange anything that makes sin look normal and okay and acceptable and makes righteousness look strange is of the world now the Bible defines it and draws it out for us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, it's not talking about just the literal earth. It's talking about the philosophical system and values that this world operates by and propagates and promotes. The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So we're to be grieving over that when we see people that are lost in sin and people thinking, taking things that have been considered sinful and now they're saying that they're normal. We should grieve over that, not just go on and say, oh, to each his own. It, our hearts should be broken at seeing the sins that people are in, engaged in. And the reality is, is many of us have become so comfortable with sin around us and in us. We don't even fight it anymore. And the problem is it's killer. It's just like carbon monoxide. You can't smell it, but what happens if your house gets filled with it? You die. And that's what many of us have done. We don't, we've become so dead to it that we can't sense it any longer and then it's slowly killing our souls so we have to understand that and, and go back to what does the bible say about it because the reality is as many of us have done what is in the book of jeremiah chapter 6 verse 15 have forgotten how to blush see that's what Jer the, jeremiah is saying here uh, were they ashamed when they committed abomination that people aren't ashamed anymore. I mean, if we see everything promoted on Facebook, on YouTube, um, on Vimeo, and we see it being paraded, and all of this just vileness, and we become okay with it. And the Bible's saying, no. See what happens when they committed abomination? They weren't ashamed any longer. Matter of fact, they don't even know how to blush anymore. There's no more shame. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall at the time that I punishment punish them they shall be overthrown he's talking about the nation of israel that they had been god's people and that god's people had forgotten how to feel shame over sin and guilt and grief and they become comfortable in their sin he's saying no 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 you can't be that any longer that i'm calling you to be something different we are to grieve over that when we see other people around us going into sin now it's not a all-consuming grief because we are to be joyful so we're not to be walking around sullen how bad the world is, but we are to grieve for those that we know that are choosing not, they aren't choosing God's best and choosing something completely antithetical to God's word. And we grieve over that. But it doesn't consume us. That's hard to do. Because we can become so consumed with it that we're down all the time and we have no joy in our lives. That's not what, see, we need to have this joy, and this joy is overarching perspective, and it doesn't always mean having a happy smile all the time going, you know, it's so wonderful, life is so good. But it's, it's an inward characteristic of our heart where we understand who God is and what he's done for us, and that this world is not our home. So, I mean, we're grieving over the spirit of the age, just as the psalmist did in Psalm 119, 136. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. 
You know, many of us don't as grieve as much as we should. I'm reminded of the story of D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody, he, uh, he, was, he was speaking someplace, and uh, Dr. R.W. Dale, who was an eminent congregational preacher, theologian in England, he once said that the only man who can listen to preaching on hell, that he could le- listen preach on hell was D.L. Moody because he'd never heard him talk of it without breaking down and weeping. Moody was so, he didn't just preach about it as a theological treatise. He preached on the personal understanding of it, that there were friends and family that were going there, and it broke his heart. It should break our hearts that we have family and friends that are going to hell. Hell is a real place. It is not a place where we should think of lightly and excuse, but we have relatives and family and friends that are going there, and we should plead and love for them to be reconciled to God. Now, another aspect of grieving over sin is not just our personal sin or the spirit of the age that's present in those around us, but a grieving because of Satan's current reign. Satan's current reign. Now, the Bible says that this world has fallen and has been given over to the evil one, who is Satan. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says this, And even if our gospel is veiled, Paul is writing this to the church at Corinth, and he says, It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So we should grieve that we are not yet seeing Christ's reign manifested in the world. That's why they're mourning. See, the disciples are experiencing this mourning because everything wasn't the way that it was supposed to be yet. And they longed for that. They wanted it, and they mourned over it. And we should mourn, too, that that the enemy is at work in people's lives, and people are, are falling left and right and are believing the lies of the evil one. Now, Paul says, though, he says, how should we respond to this? When we, when we feel this, how should we respond to people's sin, and especially the sin in our own life? We should have a type of sorrow. The Bible talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. He says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So in other words, we should be responding to the sin that we see in the world, and we should have the proper sorrow for our sin. Now, there are two kinds of sorrow that we're going to walk through rather quickly, and I want us to examine that. There's worldly sorrow, and there's godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow, and then there's godly sorrow. Now, I want to pause for a moment and examine the differences between them. Worldly sorrow comes from getting caught. Getting caught. How many, of, how many of you have gotten caught and you weren't really sorry, but you were sorry that you got caught? Yeah, I think we can all raise our hand. I've been there. There's times where it's like, oh. It's like, would you have done it? No, I wouldn't have gotten caught. <laughs> we do that. I'm reminded of a young lady that when I was a youth pastor, uh, she was uh, in my youth ministry in Chicago. Great girl. And uh, this girl was just such a great personality. People wanted to be around her. And then I remember um, seeing her for a period of time come in, and she had this big, giant cloud over her head. And I remember looking at her going, something's wrong. And I kind of inquired of the other students. I said, is she okay? I've seen her like this the last several weeks. And they said, well, she has been dating this unbeliever. She's a believer. She's dating this unbeliever. And, and, and the relationship is just not going well. And so I, I, I uh, 
you know, talked to her about it slightly, just in passing. And the next thing I knew, they, bro- they broke up. And she came in, and she was happy. She had this relief on her. She was so excited. She was engaging with people. She was fun to be around. And then so several months passed, and she came back in, and the, came back in, and the cloud was over her again. So this time, it was worse. And I thought to myself, I bet she got back together with that guy. So I inquired, and I found out, yes, they had gotten back together. I brought her into my office, and I could tell something else was really under the surface. So I started inquiring further, and I found out that she'd started sleeping with this young man. And so I, I pleaded with her to turn away from her sin. And she just bawled, and she bawled, and she goes, no, I can't. I got down on my knees. I'm not even joking. I got down on my knees, and I begged her to turn around. And she refused. So I brought in her parents. I, I shared this with her parents. They were flabbergasted. And they pleaded with her to turn from her sin, and she wouldn't. Now, see, she had sorrow, but it wasn't godly sorrow. That was worldly sorrow. See, she, she wasn't really sorry. She was sorry that she got caught and that she was in it, but she wasn't sorry enough that she was willing to turn from it. See, part of our, our sorrow that we would experience, it's the worldly sorrow was just getting caught. Now, for those who have a godly sorrow, that comes from failing the Savior. Failing the Savior. Realizing that you have sinned against Almighty God. It's not about the temporal consequences then. It's the understanding of the eternal God. It's different. That's the sorrow that we feel in that moment in time. That we have let down God. That we've sinned against God. We have, we have gone against God and we are re- going to be recipients of the very wrath of God. And that's when we, we feel the sorrow that we're willing to do anything in our power to be made right in the very presence of God. So one is getting caught, the other one's failing the Savior. Another aspect of worldly is sorrow is blaming others. How many times have we tried to do that? That's what Adam does. Adam gets caught with, you know, eating the fruit, and what does he say? It was the woman, for, he, he has two blames. He says, first of all, um, yeah, God, it's not my fault. It's the woman, by the way, and it's the woman that you gave me. You can't be held responsible for her. I mean, it's, and we're still trying the same tactic today, do we not? We blame people all the time. So we can't be blaming others. That is, that's what the enemy does. Instead, we must make sure that we are accepting responsibility. That's a characteristic of godly sorrow accepting responsibility. That's what David meant when he said, against you, you only have I sinned. He took responsibility for his sin. Have you? Have you taken responsibility for your sin? Here's another aspect of worldly sorrow. Making excuses. We are masters at making excuses. Making excuses. Instead, the Bible says, no, we reject all excuses. That's part of taking responsibility. Not making excuses, rejecting excuses. We also have a tendency to do this. Minimize sin's severity. Minimize sin's severity. We try to make our sin look not that bad. It's not, I mean, I've done that many times in my life. And uh, when I say, well, it's this and it's that and it's this. And instead of saying, no, this is what it is. Call it what it is. Call sin what it is. Don't try to minimize it its severity because when you do you minimize the cross it's like looking at rat poison and putting rat poison we've talked about this before but putting a little rat poison and take your baby's bottle and put a little rat poison in there 
Now, suddenly, we would say it's just a little bit, but you're going to say no because of how badly it really can affect that child, right? Suddenly, it's not so small. It's very big. Then why do we do that with sin? We have a tendency to look at sin that way and to think it's not that bad, except when it really, in situations like that, then it becomes really bad. So we must make sure that we are not minimizing sin's severity. That's what the devil tries to get us to do, is to make us think that our sin is not that bad. Matter of fact, C.S. Lewis, in his great book, um, Screwtape Letters, he is writing about an, a, a senior demon schooling a younger demon in the art of temptation. And as he's speaking to the younger demon, he tells him, you know what, get him to go to church, that's okay. Get him to feel bad about themselves, but not too bad, because if you make him feel too bad, then they're going to be repentant. And I don't want him to be repentant. See, we have this tendency to be able okay with ourselves, and we, we, we're okay with just feeling a little bit bad, but we're not bad enough that we're willing to do what God wants us to do and deal with our sin. So we must make sure that we're ready to deal with our sin the way that God desires us to, not minimize its severity. Instead, we need to be marveling at His sacrifice. See, when you consider the greatness of Almighty God and what He did on the cross— and we see sin in all of its awful horror thrown on him at one time as he is taking on the wrath of God. I mean, this is God himself assuming the flesh of man, taking the wrath of God upon himself, and we're seeing God's judgment on sin in that moment in time. And his sacrifice is then magnified because we see how great he is and what he did for us. Isn't that great? How great is his love? How great is his sacrifice for us, as the book of Romans chapter 8, verse 3 through 4 says this, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Seeing when Christ, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, to become sin, for us, so that in Him we, be, we might become the righteousness of God, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. Sin is serious. We, have it, we can't keep playing with it. We have to forsake it. That's what part of being blessed are those who mourn and understand not just their state, but are grieving over the sin that is at war in their bodies. See, another difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow is this. Worldly sorrow wants to keep everything hidden in secrecy. You good at hiding your sin? You're good at clearing your browser history? See, the devil wants to keep it in secret, just like mold, mold grows in dark places, does it not? What do you have to do to kill mold? Bring it into the light. So it can't fester. That's what confession is. Confessing our sins. And besides, your sin's going to come out anyway. The book of Numbers makes that pretty clear. Numbers 32, 23. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. It's going to come out. It's going to find you out. Either now or in eternity. I think I would rather have it happen now. Be sure your sin will find you out. Instead, godly sorrow is willing to be practicing transparency. Now, I will concede that transparency is hard for all of us because when we're being transparent, we risk the fear of judgment. We risk the fear of, of people 
saying all of these things against us. I've had the uh, privilege of people speaking into my life, and I've had the opportunity of hearing people sit across from me confess their sins, and I have to say, I'm not surprised by too much anymore. I mean, I'm really not. But I also know that each one of us are sinners. That sinful nature manifests itself in a different way, and it is disobedience in the sight of God, and we all have something. Some of it is just a little bit more obvious. We need to make sure that we are being transparent with our struggles, not with everybody, but especially with God. And then we need to have someone that we can share with and do life together. And it doesn't mean you share every exact detail of your life, but you can say, help me now, I'm struggling with this sin. See, that's why we, we, the purpose of confession is so powerful. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we're good at the confession to God part, but it's the James 5, 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. It's the idea of, of confessing sins. When we have to speak what we've done to another person, that's hard. But see, what happens then is there's freedom, and the devil can't use that against us any longer. It's when it stays in the dark, in secret, that the devil can use it, use it. It's when we're being open about it that we start to really enlist other people that are coming alongside us to help us be the person that God wants us to be so we can take that next step with Jesus that he has for us. Now, another aspect of worldly sorrow is this, refusing accountability. A person with worldly sorrow doesn't want accountability. They, want, they don't want to stop their sin because they love it, and for them it's enough. I've heard people say to me, I don't need accountability. I need accountability. Now, I'm not talking about self-appointed accountability. There are some people that feel like they need to be everybody's accountability partner. Now, I've, maybe you've experienced this, and I've, had, I've actually had people walk up to me. Um, years ago, it came to me, and they said, I feel like I should, I mean, I'm going to be your accountability partner oh, wow, I'm glad someone nominated you and you won the election. Why do you want to be my accountability partner? And it's usually because they want dirt on your life so they can control you. And it's under the guise of godliness, and it's some of the most urbane wickedness that you can think of. Now, there are some people that said, hey, I can tell you're hurting, and I want to help you, and, and, and whatever I can to do that, and can you help me? And they'll see, that's different. That's different. I've had brothers come to me and say, hey, I think it's be good for each of us, and that's good. That's good accountability, but there can be people that try to mask accountability, and it's really an excuse for spiritual control. Now, one of the things that those who have uh, believers in worldly sorrow, godly sorrow, excuse me, should be embracing accountability, because they understand that as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. That we help one another in our walk with Jesus. Another characteristic of someone who only has worldly sorrow is when they are spurning community. They don't want to go, they don't want to grow, and they definitely don't want to be dealing with their sin. So they pull back from others, especially when people speak into them, they retreat because they're afraid that people will really know that they are hypocrites. If you're a true believer, you're going to be seeking community. It's hard, but it's the right thing to do. Seeking community, to be with others, to do life together, to understand that we can't do this thing by ourselves, that we need other people to come alongside us. Now, where does this worldly sorrow lead? If we were to look at 2 Corinthians 7.10, which I talked about earlier, it says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation with, without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So where does this lead, worldly sorrow? Worldly sorrow produces suffering and death. 
suffering and death. Because the reality is, is we get comfortable with our sin, and it's the, the broad road to destruction. That's where everybody's comfortable. Narrow is the road to eternal life, and few find it. It's by taking up our cross and dying to it daily. And that worldly sorrow leads to ultimately to suffering. You might feel good now, but it's going to lead to suffering, greater and greater suffering later on, and eventually death and destruction. Whereas, if you are to practice this godly sorrow and this radical accountability, then you will find that you are entering into blessing and life. That's why he says, salvation without regret. It's blessing and life. Now, I'd be remiss if we didn't look at the second part of today's passage. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Comforted. Now, it's interesting here. The wording, they shall be comforted, is a divine passive in Greek. God will be the one who does the comforting for the mourners. It's not a comfort so much that we can have in the here and now as such, but rather the otherworldly joy and satisfaction and fulfillment brought about only by the coming of the Son of Man in his kingdom. In other words, one part of the Sermon on the Mount, and this beatitude in particular that helps us, uh, that helps us to do it, is, and it keeps us looking to the promised comfort of the Savior. Looking to the promised comfort of the Savior. Now see, that's what this beatitude does, is we're understanding that we're mourning, but that our tears are going to be wiped away, and we'll have the joy of the Lord. When I was in India, uh, about a year ago now, in November, I, and, and being there for some time, I started having this, I, I had a great time there, but I would communicate with my family, and what happens when you start communicating your family and you're far away? You want to go home, don't you? You want to be home with your family. And see, that's what Jesus is saying, is that you realize that heaven is no longer, I mean, heaven is, this world is no longer your home, but heaven is, and it gives us a longing for the comfort that only the Savior can give. That there are desires yet to be fulfilled in this world that only heaven itself can take care of. So it gives us this longing, or this looking to the promised comfort of the Savior, and it gives us a greater longing for the Lord. We want to be with Him. We want to experience Him. We want to, to know Him and what He has for us. And it also gives us an increased hope for our heavenly home. This world is not our home. This world is not our home. And we grieve. And many of us don't grieve because we, we fail to see the sin that's going on around us because that means we're going to have to get engaged and it also means that we could be rejected and face persecution, and our fear is too great. See, that's not what the Bible is advocating. The Bible is saying, no, you've got to love so much that put yourself out there, and it's going to hurt. Look what happened to Jesus. So it gives us a longing for the Lord and a hope for our heavenly home, and it's in our heavenly home where we will receive comfort, not in the here and now. See, we want comfortable Christianity. Or a Christianity that is comfortable. But, but Jesus is saying, no, the comfort only comes when you get to be with me, the Christ. And that's an eternity. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, we read this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning. There won't be any mourning there. Nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Because we're home. 
I don't have that longing anymore. After I, when I was in India and I kept looking at my kids on Skype and I longed for them and I'd flip through pictures and I'd look at them and then I got home and I didn't have that longing anymore because I had them in my arms. I got to hold them for at least a few seconds before they pushed me away. Okay. But that's how it was. So we need to make sure that we're understanding that our, this world is not our home. That's part of this beatitude and the reality that it is putting before us, that we're mourning of our condition in the here and now, but we are waiting to be righted in our heavenly home. Now, thirdly, we can have a greater trust in times of trial. We know that God is going to work it out for our good when we're struggling now, when we're mourning, when we see the sin of the world and the condition that it's in. We, we can trust in him knowing that he's going to bring, it's not dependent upon us, but he's going to bring his mission to pass. Trust in times of trial. And lastly, it gives us peace in the present. We can have peace. See, our life is to be characterized by peace. Now, it's how do you have peace and mourn at the same time? It's understanding that God is in charge, but I still long for that person to come to know who you are. And I, gro- I, I long for, <laughs> just as the Lord's Prayer says, that it will be done on earth it is as it has been done in heaven. That's our longing. Isn't that the Lord's Prayer? That it will be done on earth, that it is in heaven, and then the reality of that happening is going to be wonderful. And it gives us peace to know that's going to be brought about. Help us to get through the trials and the tribulations that we face in and out. He gives us his peace, as Jesus says in John 16, 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Even though Jesus wept, at the sins of others. He wept at nation, in cities that rejected him, but he still had peace that he gives to us and knowing that his will would be accomplished and every wrong will be righted and that he, his name will receive glory. We're going to take a pause now. We're going to do business with God, if you haven't already. I know I've talked a lot about sin today, and, and this is basically a personal inventory of sin in your life. We all have this inventory that we need to do. I need to do it as well. And we're going to get ready to partake of the Lord's Supper, supper, also known as communion. And I want to lay out some things before us, before we partake of it. The first is this. This is something for those who are believers only. Those who have placed their faith in Christ and repented of their sins and embraced Him as Lord and Savior. So it's for believers. And not only for believers, but for believers who are in right state with God. Now what I mean by that is this. If you are a believer yet, you know that you're cherishing and holding on to your sin, then you're not in the right state. It's when we confess our sins, and we are honest with Him, and we declare our spiritual bankruptcy, and we mourn and grieve over our sin, that's when we should be able to enter into communion. And until we feel that or sense that within us, we should let it pass us by. So it's a very serious thing. And the Bible talks a great deal about it. Paul even says, what I, do, what I received from the Lord, I also gave unto you, that the, the night the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper and saying, this is the new covenant and my blood. As you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. And Paul gives us some great instruction by saying unto us that we should make sure that we are doing an inventory of ourselves because if we eat the bread or drink the cup in an unworthy manner, we are inviting God's direct discipline and judgment in our lives. That's why the scripture says, that's why some of you are weak and ill and some have died because they drank the body and the blood in an unworthy manner. See, if we come before God declaring our bankruptcy, 
And he knows we're bankrupt. Why do we pretend? Why do we pretend that we're better than we are? We come humbly. We come broken. And then if you are broken, then feel free to partake. Receive it joyfully. So let's take a few moments now to be quiet before the Lord. And I'm going to ask for God's blessing on our time. And as this, these elements are going to be passed around, again, if you know you're not in right state, let it pass you by. If you're a person here today who's not yet trusted in Christ, let it pass you by. No one's going to judge you. We want, we're glad that you're here, but we want you to do business with God and be right with God first. And then as we are waiting together to partake of it, Ask God to reveal and bring to the surface those sins that you're holding on to. Ask him if you've been having worldly sorrow or godly sorrow. And then respond in faith accordingly. And then I will come back and we will partake freely together. So let's ask for God's blessing on our communion time. Father, we know according to your word that blessed are those who are sad. Or happy are those who are sad. Lord, blessed and happy are those who understand their spiritual bankruptcy and are mourning over their sin. Lord, help us to mourn over our sin. Help us to see it in all of its horror, but yet to see the cross and our Savior in all of his glory, knowing that he paid the price for our sin, that we don't have to pay the price ourselves. Help us stand in awe of what happened on the cross. Help us to see you in all of your glory and your great love poured out for us. But Lord, help us not to play with our sin any longer. Help us not to excuse it or overlook it, but help us to call it what it is. Bring it to our attention. Help us to, Lord, confess it and turn from it. But Lord, please give us the gift of tears. And Lord, then help us have joy knowing that we have been forgiven and we are blessed by you because of doing so. So Lord, use us Speak to us now in our communion time. In Jesus' name we pray.